Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have come now to the end of this season of Epiphany, and Epiphany is a season in which we see through the Gospels the revelation of Jesus Christ, not only as the Messiah, but here emphasized as the Son of God. Epiphany began celebrating and remembering the baptism of Jesus Christ. Over that baptism, we heard the Father speak, this is my beloved Son. And it's important to recognize that the Father did not say, this is the Messiah, or this is the Son of Man, or this is a rabbi, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, upon whom my favor rests. This is the Father's conferring and demonstrating the beautiful obedience of the Son, that the Father loves the Son not just for who the Son is, but what the Son will do in obeying the Father's will. As a perfect Son, He perfectly honors and loves His Father and so obeys from joy, for joy. That was set before him. And so as we come to the close of this season, we have been seeing over and over again the progressive victory and display of Jesus Christ in his glory over evil powers. After his baptism, he goes into the wilderness to defeat the devil, and he defeats the devil by reciting the word of God, by standing upon the precious promises of the scriptures. And interestingly, Jesus goes to a place that we wouldn't go. He goes to Deuteronomy in order to defeat the devil. 
and he comes up out of the wilderness victorious, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, anointed to do ministry in the towns. And as he begins to go through in Mark's gospel in chapter 1, as we've been seeing these last few weeks, he goes into the synagogue and displays his glory that as he's teaching, he brings an experience of the kingdom of God and the demonic realm reacts to this holy invasion of the spirit of God and presence and power of God and they are immediately reacting to the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And it's very interesting to note that in Mark's gospel there are no men who recognize Jesus as the son until the end of the book. They recognize him from time to time as the Messiah or as a teacher, but what Mark is doing is demonstrating a deep irony that we'll get to at the end of the message today. The deep irony is that as Jesus is being revealed, none of the humans are recognizing what's going on. That the demons, as we saw, cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God, and he silences their voices. Yet as he's displaying his power, it is a glorious display And yet there is something that the people in the stories are missing. And so as we move now to the close of this season, we jump forward to the transfiguration and it summarizes everything that happened in his earthly ministry. If you want to read it this way, I think it's right to read it this way, that what we see in the transfiguration is a microcosm of what's been happening in the Gospels. We're seeing the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's shining forth, and yet that isn't the apex of the power of Jesus Christ. That is my main point today, is that the transfiguration is not a distraction, but it is not the final point. The transfiguration is not the apex of the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, but rather there's something hidden that Mark intentionally omits in this passage of where he's going. That is going to be seen as the chief end of the glory of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the display of free grace at the cross. So I want to look at this passage in five aspects. First, I want to look at a parallel passage and account from the Exodus that as Moses encountered God on the mountain, that that sets the foundation and stage and all of the imagery for what comes now in the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to look at Jesus' transfiguration itself and what some of the details that Mark records might mean for who Jesus is supposed to be. And I believe that's exactly why Mark records these specific details. And then I want to move to Peter's failure to apprehend and to behold what's going on. And just so you are aware, I, I, I do not malign Peter when I do this because he is a lesson for us. And in fact, it's actually God's grace that he allowed Peter to even see anything at all, um, even though he misses it. And so we're not going to malign Peter, but rather we're going to hopefully learn from what he didn't see and his short-sighted failure in deciding to camp out at the, the mount. And then we're going to look at the revelation of Jesus Christ's glory as the Son of God, as the Father comes and speaks over him, confirming what 
the point of Elijah and Moses' presence was, which was to say that this is the chief and final revelation of God. This is the prophet which was to come into the world. And then finally, we're going to move to the cross. That's where Mark moves. That's intentionally the point of this revelation. So as we're capping the season of Epiphany, we have seen Jesus' glory in the time of Christmas in his incarnation being veiled, his wonderful condescension and humility as he took on the form of a servant. And then through the Epiphany, we've been seeing his humility in submitting to his parents and then being presented at the temple and then coming out and displaying humility in submitting once again, not just to his parents, but to John the Baptist in his baptism, that he would be the head over the washed people of the church. And then moving from there, he again submits to the leading of the spirit in which he goes up into the wilderness and defeats the devil, submitting himself to the authority of the word of God as he uses the word of God to defeat the devil. And then moving from that place, he begins to show his power over evil. But the chief goal of this revelation of Jesus Christ is to demonstrate not simply his power over demons or sickness. And as we saw a few weeks ago, his power over human pride and his power over the temptations to surround himself with people. But here we see he is not willing to have glory apart from the cross. And that is the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ is that who he is in his person is as a faithful son, he was not willing to camp out on the Mount of Transfiguration, but went intentionally toward Jerusalem because he had something to do, which was to reveal the heart of the Father. And so to that end, I want to examine this passage this morning. So at the at the time of the Exodus, God has delivered the people of Israel and he's taken them out of, his, uh, uh, of Egypt. He's brought them out into the wilderness. He has destroyed the empire of Egypt and has ravaged their economy, dismantled their structures and destroyed their crops and their livestock and their, their river, which gave them their lifeblood, turning that water into blood. God has now taken his people out, he's preserved them, and he calls Moses to come up onto a mountain. This transfiguration account builds on everything that takes place in these mountain experiences of Moses. Uh, he does this, God does this, to highlight something about what Jesus is doing. And it's exactly this aim that I want to get at in showing the parallels. It's not enough to just see there's some nice imagery that matches. Those are wonderful things. But there's a central problem in the revelation of God's glory that's given to Moses on the mountain, as we're about to see. God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai to fellowship with him and to receive the law. God tells him to come up on the mountain and he's going to show him how the tabernacle is to be made and how the people are to be made by living in accordance with the law that he gives. However, as soon as it's given, as soon as the law is given and the tabernacle is explained to Moses, the very moment God finishes with his purpose in speaking the law and describing the tabernacle, he then tells Moses, get yourself down off of this mountain to go to the people for they've broken out. 
and Aaron has let them break out, and they've, they've created, Exodus tells us quite clearly, the people created a calf in Aaron's creation of the calf. It's a very interesting verse. The people made the calf, the calf that Aaron made. And so we see this great idolatry erupt from this people who had just been the recipients of God's grace. They were trapped in the bondage of Egypt. They were unable to deliver themselves. They were in harsh oppression. God does signs and wonders to extricate them from that nation. He moves them into the wilderness and he destroys the army of Pharaoh in the, the, the waters. And then from a, just a few short days, 40 days later, they see that Moses is not yet returned. They don't know what's come of him and they decide we need to make gods so that we can worship, so that we can go forth in the wilderness. Aaron presents this calf and God sends Moses to go down to the people to stop them in their idolatry. Despite their rebellion, Moses then immediately intercedes for God's forgiveness and God's presence and God's power to come and reside in their midst. He says, we do not want to go forward unless your presence come, unless your glory will be shown to me. And so Moses asks, Lord, show me your glory. And God grants Moses' request. Now Moses, to God, is the representative of the people. He reminds God of the sin of God's people as Moses comes up the mountain. Nevertheless, God calls Moses to come back up to him and warns him not to look upon his face. He says, come up, but do not look upon my face, for you cannot see my face and live. Moses would be destroyed if he looked upon God. As Moses ascends up the mountain, God descends upon the mountain in a cloud of glory and speaks to Moses and then tells Moses there is a cleft in the rock, there's a hole in the mountain, and you're to be put in that hole and I will come and cover you up so that you're not destroyed and I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and you will see my backside, but you cannot see my face. And he says in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name. His name is this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. In some translations, it says for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so God reveals himself in speech, describing his name to Moses, and Moses receives this amazing revelation of who God is. He's a God who's marked by grace. He's marked by forgiveness, and yet he will not be unjust. This presents an immediate problem, doesn't it? In the revelation of God's name, we see his amazing grace. We see this merciful God, and yet it is a perplexing question is, how can God simultaneously forgive yet not clear the guilty? Have you ever seen a Venn diagram? I'm, I'm a computer person and a math person, so I love Venn diagrams. If you don't know what a Venn diagram, it's very easy. There's a rectangle, 
And that is the domain of, this, of the topic. And then there's circles. For example, um, things that are good for me and things that are delicious. There's a very small intersection between those two circles, right? Pets that I like and pets that I don't like. Again, very, those are distinct sets. And in this amazing revelation of the glory of God, God is saying, I am a merciful God, and yet I will not clear the guilty. And if we think about it for more than just a second, we say to ourselves, there's no one in that set. There are people who need forgiven. Those are guilty people. There are people who he will not clear. Those are the people who need forgiven. There's no overlap between those two sets of people. This is a great problem. And probably Moses was quite aware of it as he was coming down the mountain. He's perplexed by the glory of God. He cannot understand. And the reason I say that Moses is perplexed is because the rest of the New Testament says the prophets which came beforehand, they longed to look into these things which we now see, but they couldn't see. And so Moses is faced with a great dilemma is how can God strive with an evil people? And he comes down from the mountain with no answer. And so he simply asks God to be patient with the people, and God is patient. Just as Moses is called up the mountain, therefore, in this account, we have to read it in the light of the revelation which has come through the entire scriptures. Just as Moses was called up by God to come up to the mountain, here we see a different thing. Jesus is not called up, but he calls up Peter, James, and John to come with him up the mountain. Unlike Moses, Jesus is not called up to see God's glory for himself, but rather Jesus goes up to show his glory. It's a mistake to say, okay, Moses went up a mountain, Jesus went up a mountain, Jesus is in the place of Moses. This is a New Testament. It's not merely that. Jesus goes up on purpose to show his glory. Moses went up to see God's glory. Jesus is God going up to show his glory to his disciples. Verse 2 in Mark 9, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth or no launderer on earth could bleach them. The reason the ESV doesn't use that word launderer is because it's no, it's no longer popular. Now we launder our clothes ourselves. But in those days, it was common to have a designated job in the community. He's the guy, he's the baker, he's the plumber. This guy launders the clothing. He's a fuller. That's where that word comes from, fuller. He's one who applies soap to clothes. And so Mark is recording this revelation of Jesus, and he emphasizes a few things. That Jesus chose these three people for special occasions, for special times, where the rest of the disciples, because of Jesus' uh, Jesus's purview, or Jesus' prerogative, rather, he just decided it's not appropriate for all of the disciples to come. And he does this in a way, and it hints to something special is going to take place. For example, when he goes in to heal the, the girl who had died, he only takes Peter, James, and John. Likewise, at the, 
at the uh, prayer right before his death. Again, he, he, the disciples come, but then he calls the three to come even closer to him. This, this highlights to us Jesus is doing something important that they must see so that they would be witnesses. And so Jesus calls these three for this special task of what he is going to do upon this mountain. He graciously prepares them in this passage. Why does Jesus choose these three? It is because these three have been chosen by God to play a special role after the resurrection in being some of the chief apostles and chief witnesses, martyrs, same word, martyrs, to the glory of Christ. He does this for these three because they need to see it. They need to see who Jesus is if they are going to persevere through the suffering which will come. Jesus went up purposefully to manifest himself to them so that they would know his divine authority as the Son of God. He took them up that they would get it. He did not take them up to confuse them. He took them up for the purpose of revealing who he was to them. Though Moses' face shone in a reflective way upon the glory of God, in this account, Jesus himself, Mark records, is the one who's transformed or transfigured. Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining, much like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But here in this passage, as Jesus is going up the mountain, he's the one that's glowing. He's not merely seeing God's glory. He, the glory of God is, rem, is emanating through his body, such that Mark says his clothes became radiant. Do you know what radiant means? If you, if you know radioactive, perhaps you're familiar. There's a substance that is emitting electrons and gamma rays, and all you physics people can correct me later, all of these wonderful and deadly things that are being emitted from these atoms that have too much energy and they can't hold it in any longer and they're bursting forth with power and anything that comes near this radioactive substance is destroyed. It's tainted forever. It becomes radioactive itself. This, I believe, is what Mark is saying, that his clothes begin to emanate light because they cannot contain who Jesus is in his glory. And so Jesus does this to demonstrate not just who he is as the divine son of God, which is in play, but also another purpose. That in his incarnation, his glory was veiled, taking on human form, the form of a servant, but here he shines forth. His clothing is whiter than possible, hinting at two grand themes in the scriptures, which come in great union in this place, that the lamb which is offered to God to make atonement for the homes of Israel has to be a lamb without spot and without blemish. And likewise, for the priest to go into the Holy of Holies, he has to be adorned with linen, pure linen, not just an external cloak, but an internal cloak. He has to wear linen undergarments and a linen vestment that he has to be a representation, that the priest has to look like the nature of the offering which is offered up for the forgiveness of sins. That, that, that God would so union these two in the very beginning words of the transfiguration is no surprise at all. 
after the faithful depart, as the faithful dep- departed are alive to God, God then causes Elijah and Moses to come and to be present with the Lord. It, it's very important that we understand these were not just um, phantoms. The disciples weren't hallucinating when they thought they saw Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are alive to God, and they came for a specific purpose. Verse 4 of Mark 9, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah both encountered the glory of God in their earthly lives. We reviewed Moses' encounter, and we didn't review, but Elijah saw Elisha's departure, and there was a chariot filled with fire, and that was what Elijah saw of his former spiritual father as he was departing from the earth, a chariot of fire carrying a man out of the world. I don't know about you, I don't want to get in a chariot of fire. The point of why they are there is not to say that Jesus is on par with these two people. The reason God brought Moses and Elijah to this Mount of Transfiguration is in a very small part, I believe, to encourage Christ. In a greater point is so that they would see the glory of Jesus. They don't come to give glory to Jesus. Moses and Elijah aren't testifying that Jesus is like them. Moses and Elijah come so that they would behold him. And they begin to speak to him about what they wrote of him in the law and the prophets. Even here, they're beholding Christ's glory, just as they had formerly in their own lives beheld God's glory. And the reason I say this is because the New Testament is so clear is the prophets of old have longed to look into these things. That's what Hebrews 1 and 1 Peter 1 tell us is that the the prophets who prophesied beforehand, they were looking for the Christ but it was revealed to them that they're serving you upon whom the mystery of God has been revealed, things which angels have even longed to look into. And so God gives to Moses and Elijah this great privilege of coming and testifying. He's not just like us. He's our God as well. And so they come to behold the Christ. Further, in a symbolic way, Moses and Elijah are symbolic representatives of the law and the prophets. They are kind, you can think of them as totems or, or, or tokens, um, reminders of, of what the scriptures were, and they begin to converse with him, just as later John, uh, Luke would record in, after the resurrection, everything that was written in the law and the prophets must be fulfilled. And so they come to testify that this is not just a prophet or a teacher, this is God upon the mountain. Though this revelation was extremely great and quite clear, Peter completely misses the point. In verse 5 of Mark 9, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, Mark is the narrator here. He's commenting, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, I want you to imagine just for a minute that you are encountering another human being. They go up onto a mountain, and quite clearly, 
the founders of your faith, perhaps Abraham, perhaps David, show up and start talking with that person as that person becomes glowing. And not just glowing, but too bright to look upon. Did any of you look at the eclipse with unaided eye? I did. Because I wanted just for a moment, even a split second, to contemplate what it must be like that even in the veiling of the sun, I cannot look at it. And I don't ever recommend that, so please don't. (laughs) I'm not liable for your... The reason why they are terrified is because it was terrifying. Jesus was not just glowing like a nightlight or some glow-in-the-dark figure. He was too bright to look at. They could not contain the revelation that was in front of them, and filled with fear, Peter responds. The disciples' fear is extremely warranted, for they had seen the glory of God and ought to have been afraid. When Manoah and Manoah's wife, the the parents of, I believe, Samson, when they see the angel of the Lord, they say afterwards, woe is us, for we have seen God. We are dead men. We are done. It is over. And his wife consoles him, well, if if we were, God would have already done it. We're going to be okay. (laughs) But later on in the scriptures in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is seeing the glory of the Lord and he pronounces six woes upon the people of Israel and the, the prophets of Israel and the priests and the scribes of Israel for being wayward. And then he begins to, to pronounce woes on the nations around them which hadn't come to the glory of Yahweh. And as he gets to the sixth chapter, we expect a seventh and total complete final woe. And then he pronounces woe upon himself because he's seen the glory of God in the temple of the Lord, and he is undone because he is a person of unclean lips. Likewise, Ezekiel sees the glory of God in a whirlwind and a fire and chariots and angels around the throne of God. He beholds a a figure upon the throne, a figure like a man, and at the end of chapter 3 in Ezekiel, excuse me, in the middle of chapter 3, he says that he sat beside the river, stunned for seven days. If you've never read Ezekiel, that verse is worth the price of admission alone. Ezekiel sees the vision of God and he is undone. If you've ever seen a cartoon where they get hit with, you know, like a piano or a load of bricks and then they're totally knocked out, they're seeing stars, That is what happened to Ezekiel for an entire week. He was undone at the glory of God. He could not contain the revelation. And that is exactly what happens in this place. uh, Peter speaks from fear and unbelief, and he then asserts himself into making statements. It's good that you brought us. Isn't that an interesting thing that that Peter then says, it's good that we were here? Peter decides he wants to camp out at this experience. He presumes, based on how great an experience it was, and indeed it was great, that this is what Jesus came to do. He came to be a new teacher. That's why he says, Rabbi. He opens his mouth and the first word is wrong. He was supposed to see the glory of the Son of God, and he says, Rabbi, it's good that you brought us. You did a good job in bringing us here. Do you, is that how you read? Excuse me. 
wow. That might be the solution to fix the clicker. Uh, it's good that you brought us here. We were on this mountain for a good purpose. We should build three tents, memorial stones, memorial places for you and for Moses and for Elijah. Peter completely misses the point. He equates Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Three tents. Why are there three tents? Because they're equal. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. In Peter's mind, same purpose in the plan of God. He was completely ignorant of Jesus' supremacy as the Son of God. And to that end, the Father interrupts Peter's plan and then speaks. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The Father here tells, just as he did at the baptism of Jesus, about the exclusivity of the Son of God. Before Moses departed, God gave Moses a revelation that later, after Moses' departure, he would raise up a prophet like unto you from amidst your brothers, and it is to him the people must listen. And if they do not listen to him, I myself will require it of each person. That is exactly what the Father is saying when he says, listen to him. He's not just saying Jesus is the smartest teacher. He's saying that this is the prophet that Moses wrote about. He's the one who came. He's the one who was told of by Moses, you must listen to his teaching. John and Hebrews in their first chapter deal with this, that he tabernacled among us and revealed the glory of God. Likewise, Hebrews says that God spoke in many ways and many times, but he has spoken in one final and true way, completely clear, without any case of misunderstanding what he said. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. Further commanding them to listen to him, the Father identifies Jesus as that prophet, and then from there ends the encounter. Immediately, everything is over. After the voice of the Father, then the disciples start to come down the mountain, being left with Jesus alone. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one of what they had seen until the Son of God had risen from the dead. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, they obeyed, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I got one laugh. Mark got one laugh. Mark's writing in a way that's deeply and tragically ironic. Because you and I, if we're believers, maybe, maybe some of us who have not heard the story, we know what happens. What is Mark doing? He's demonstrating something. He's saying no one understood what he was saying. Nobody got it. He says, don't tell anyone what you just saw, but after I rise from the dead, then start telling people. And they say, okay. And then, and then they go apart, and they're talking amongst themselves, what's going on? Jesus tells them to keep silent for two reasons. One is to provoke their lack of understanding. That's, a, that's clearly at play. Jesus is doing that. 
But also, he doesn't want the ministry to be distracted. Jesus told the Jews, you will not receive any sign except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days and then He's saying, I'm only going to do one sign for you. I will be killed and I will come back to life. Of course, he didn't say it quite clearly. He said it so that they might be able to chew on what he said and hopefully get there. Nevertheless, they didn't. And so Jesus says, I won't do any great signs for the people. And so he tells his disciples, don't, tell, don't spread this around. This isn't the point. It's necessary that you saw this. It's necessary that the apostles will record it for the future. But this isn't the point of the ministry. And this right here begins to get to the kernel of what I want to hopefully highlight in this passage by God's grace. It is that Jesus is doing something to the disciples, with the disciples, that they would be able to see who he is. Mark's phrasing, as I mentioned, is tragically ironic. The tragic irony is they had never before seen the glory of who Jesus was in his divine glory, his divine authority, and after having seen him in an external way, they have no idea who he is. Verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? Now, this is an interesting passage, but it's quite clear that they are asking a very precise technical, ex- technical question about one fact in Isaiah and Malachi, which says, in Malachi it says that he will send the spirit of Elijah before him. And Mark actually records this in Mark 1. Isaiah also says a very similar thing, that, that he'll send a messenger who the Jews interpreted as Elijah. So they're, they're perplexed as to who he is because they think he's the Messiah, and yet he just said, I'm going to die, and they have no capacity for the resurrection from the dead, and so they get lost in their eschatology. They get confused, and so they say, well, Jesus, well, if you are going to die, and Elijah just showed up, why do the prophets say that Elijah has to come, and then the Messiah will be revealed if you're going to die and clearly aren't the Messiah? And he then turns the question back around to them. He responds affirmatively, but says that they've missed the entire point of the scriptures. Verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he asks them a better question. They ask one tiny little microscopic question about a detail that Malachi includes, that the spirit of Elijah will go before the Messiah is revealed. And he then turns it on its ear and says, you're worried about this small little detail of the minor prophets and you've missed the entire thrust and aim of the scriptures that the Son of Man must first suffer and then enter into glory. That's what he's doing in this verse. He says, and how is it written? He says, if you don't understand that, how can you understand this, a much greater theme, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He then says, quite clearly, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And the other gospel writers make it plain, he's not speaking of the transfiguration. Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Elijah must come before the Messiah as Isaiah and Malachi wrote. And Mark includes in his first 
chapter, he quotes from Isaiah that, it, that the Lord will send the messenger before the great day of the Lord. And Jesus clearly says that John the Baptist is Elijah. Now, when I say is, I mean he was like Elijah. That the prophets were saying someone with the spirit of or flavor of or ministry like Elijah must come. And John did that. He did powerful miracles in the nation of Israel. Not the miracles of raising people from the dead or causing bushes to keep burning. He did the powerful miracle of preaching the word of God and having souls convert and repent and turn to Yahweh, this wicked nation that had been running from God and had perverted the intention of the law. John the Baptist comes as the final prophet and does the most miraculous thing is he causes dead stones to become living hearts through the preaching of God's word. And so John does the work of Elijah. He turns the hearts of these wicked children back to their father, Yahweh. That's what Malachi says. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to the fathers. He rescues these wayward sinners and redeems them through God's word, through preaching, and he causes them to come to life. Without John, the way for Christ cannot be prepared. Jesus then says, if Elijah came and had such a great ministry and they did whatever they wanted to him, what do you think is going to happen to the Son of Man? That's where Jesus is going with this encounter of the disciples. In so doing, he highlights the contempt that they showed for Elijah. What did they do to Elijah? Do you remember how Elijah died? Herod was having a party and he invited guests to come and Herodias sent her daughter to dance in front of them. This is, this is one of the most wicked things in the scriptures. And King Herod promised in haste and in ignorance and folly, he promised her, I'll give you whatever you want. He was, in this passage, deluded with lust and blinded by the, the fear of men in his party. And so she goes to her mother and her mother said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Do you know why John the Baptist died? Because Herod was afraid of disturbing his guests at a party in which someone had danced a provocative sensual dance. That's how the greatest prophet born from all eternity to, to Jesus Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's how the greatest prophet died. He died because someone was afraid of disrupting a dinner party. And Jesus says to his disciples, if they did this to Elijah, what do you think they're going to do to the Son of Man? That's the point of the transfiguration. It's to highlight to the disciples who do not see who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, the glory of that Son and the height from which he will condescend in his suffering. That as he goes forth from this encounter of revealing himself to his disciples in an external way, now he will constantly highlight the internal heart or the core, the, the marrow of who Jesus Christ is as the suffering servant. If they treat Elijah like that, how will they treat 
the Messiah. The deep irony of the transfiguration is that in seeing Jesus Christ as clearly as ever, they have no idea who he is, nor do they know his deepest purpose and longing of his heart. In seeing his external glory, they were completely ignorant of the heart of his mercy and compassion. And it is exactly at this moment that in the Gospels, everything hinges and turns. And after this place, Luke records for us, not in Mark, but in Luke, it records for us that from now on, Jesus sent his face. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He did not avoid going intentionally full well, knowing what would take place, he had something to do. The question is, why does he do that? And again, I'm going to turn to Luke in Luke chapter 8, excuse me, 9. What Luke records and Mark intentionally does not record because Mark is giving us the vision of what it's like to be the disciples. We don't hear their conversation in Mark because the disciples don't get it. But Luke records for us more clearly and fully, behold, two men were talking with Moses, with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you see what's going on? In the midst of the glory of Christ being displayed in an external way, in a true way, though external, the disciples are caught off guard. They're terrified and they decide we should camp out at this understanding of who Jesus is as a teacher, as a new lawgiver, as the final prophet, as just one in a long series. Perhaps a capstone, but maybe not really. And Jesus, as he's there talking with Moses and Elijah, Mark doesn't record it, but Luke records it. What is the core of the glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's that in the midst of this amazing encounter, the thing that is on Jesus' heart is to die for his people. That is what the transfiguration is about. It's about showing us what we cannot see unless God opens our eyes. Luke's account, mixed with Mark's recording of the conversation after the descent, shows us the true purpose of the transfiguration. The transfiguration is not the apex of Christ's ministry and glory, but rather, in the midst, Moses and Elijah are consumed with longing and anticipation such that the topic of their conversation is what's coming next. We know where you're going from this place. We heard from the Holy Spirit what you would do as the suffering servant, as the great prophet, as the Son of God, the Messiah come in the flesh. They are not distracted. Moses, Jesus, Elijah, they are not distracted with the externals, they pierce into the core, which is the heart of Jesus for his people. The glory of God, therefore, is not seen in the transfiguration in an external capacity alone, but rather in what it reveals about Jesus Christ. The glory of God reached its highest expression in the death of the Son of God, that he might fulfill the mystery spoken of to Moses. Remember how we said that God was a God of mercy and compassion and yet he won't clear the guilty? Jesus goes back up to, to a mountain to explain how that mystery will be resolved. Is I'm going to go accomplish my departure. And Luke records that word and is translated to departure as departure. 
but in the text, it actually is the word the exodus. Jesus is accomplishing the exodus in Jerusalem. He's accomplishing the exodus by offering up his own blood for the deliverance and forgiveness of the people, being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in seeing the glory of Christ upon the mountain, we must be directed to look forward to a greater display of glory at the cross. And in, dis- and in seeing that glory which is displayed at the cross, we are delivered from everything else that distracts us. You see, we are Peter in this passage. It's important to recognize that. That as we start to get little glimpses of who Jesus Christ is, perhaps we sense his presence or see something beautiful from the word, that we want to kind of camp out at that level of understanding. And yet, I believe what this, is, what this passage is designed to do is it's designed to call our attention forward to Jesus Christ who put himself between you and the wrath of God that he would be able to offer up his pure, precious, sanctifying blood as the forgiveness of your sins. And not only that, that he would also be raised as God's son. So let's close with prayer. Father, we are so unable to even comprehend the mere fringes of your glory. And we cannot, without your grace, without your Holy Spirit, even begin to see who Jesus Christ is in his kindness and in his mercy, in his wonderful work of putting himself between the sins of the people and and your wrath. That as he goes to the cross, that his greatest aim and desire is to demonstrate your heart as he reveals the forgiveness of God. Lord, we're reminded of of even just what his words were on the cross, that as they are killing him, he is asking you to not hold it against them, that you would forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And Lord, we, we pray that this, this year as we seek as a body, as a people to encounter your glory and your word and in your presence, we pray, Lord, that you would cause your, your word to gain entry in our hearts, that it would open up our lives and that we would bear fruit, that we would bear the fruit that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would not only see Jesus in his supremacy and in his glory and in the height of the expression of his divinity, but also, Lord, that we would see the depths to which he condescended as he offered up his own life in our place. That as he gave us life, it cost him his death. And yet for us who were in death, it became life for us. We thank you for this wonderful exchange. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the gift of being able to see Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.